You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. All right, our sermon text today comes from uh, Exodus 15 through 18, I think. The reading is from chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Thanks, Cross. Um, so excited to be here with you this morning and to be in God's word. And um, I don't see faces that know me, don't know me, but hey, I'm Chad, one of the pastors, in case you don't. Um, but, um, you know, we've been spending this time in Exodus and I'm coming to a turning point in the text. Uh, Micah um, so wonderfully walked us through the Red Sea account and the challenging encouragement so creatively as well last week uh, in a format that I am ill-suited to deliver. So don't expect, uh, you know, track two or whatever uh, for this morning. Um, but, um, but it was uh, fabulously prepared and 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 delivered and I appreciate that your work going into that I appreciate how you set us up and even I quote you uh, today some so there you go um, <laughs> because um, because God is doing something as he walks through Exodus with his people and one of the questions that's at play here is uh, what does it mean to trust God uh, what does it mean to trust God and it's funny, I was actually at a stoplight messaging somebody about that same exact question. I sent something to Aaron or something like that along those lines. And then I look up and there's a license plate in front of me that says, in God we trust on it. Um, and, and I don't think everyone in the U.S. means what the Bible means about trusting God. Um, it's, on our, it's on our money, it's on the license plates, it's all around us. Um, but the question at hand is, what does it mean to trust God? And trusting God is really an aspect of saving faith. It's central to um, 
to uh, our faith as believers, as, as Christians. Um, there's a definition that John Gill gives in the body of divinity where he says that saving faith, uh, trusting God is an aspect of saving faith, which has been said to have three elements to it. Knowledge, to know and recognize something to be true. Assent, uh, to ascend to, assent to that, to agree to it. But then the third part is to actually trust in it. Uh, all three aspects go together, but without trust, faith is inadequate. And actually, it's very, it's shockingly indistinguishable, uh, excuse me, indistinguishable from the faith of demons. Um, in fact, Scripture tells us that, that demons actually believe and shudder before God, yet they don't repent and surrender themselves to him. And so trust is a part of faith, and it's pivotal and central, and God is trying to answer this question. So I appreciate last week what Micah mentioned in his sermon when he said, we don't experience true joy in God's presence until we learn to trust him fully. We don't experience true joy. We don't experience uh, true joy in God's presence until we learn to trust him fully. And I, I really appreciate the illustration he gave. If you, if you heard this, where he says, um, you know, with my kids, if I pick them up and I throw them into the air, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm, there's happiness. If I go out to the playground and pick up somebody else's random kid and start throwing them in the air, there's fear, there's deprivation. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. There's, uh, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's stress. Matter of fact, I have this experience. I've done this to people. I don't throw their kids up in the air, but I will say that I have grabbed other people's kids, turned them upside down. They don't like it. Um, there's photos somewhere, on, I'm sure, on my social profiles of me throwing my kids way too high in the air. So I'm a dad who does that, uh, which freak out grandparents, you know. I like to take babies when they can barely, like, keep their head upright and just kind of balance them, you know. It's, exercise of skill, helps them strengthen their neck. I think it's all positive all around. Um, but if someone else's baby, I'm like, hey, let me, let me do this. They would probably not appreciate that. But God is in this way with, <laughs> God is in this way. He's trying to establish that trust in his people. The theme of learning to trust God is strong through these passages. We have several stories going on uh, in, in these passages of scripture, there's, there's one, two, three, four, five, five stories actually that we walk through. Uh, there's three where there's some food and, and, and water that they're looking for. There's one where they get attacked by an outside army. And then finally we see a passage where Jethro, which is Moses' father-in-law, shows up on the scene. And it's important for us to consider where we are situated in the canon. Okay, what I mean by that, where we are in the story. Okay, it's really important because you note that this is God's people already free and saved from bondage in Egypt. Okay, they are through the waters of the Red Sea. They have, they have passed through. Pharaoh has been destroyed. They are free. They're no longer slaves. But they're not at Sinai and they don't have the law yet. Okay, that's important to note because the law was not a prerequisite for salvation. And the law was not a prerequisite for what God's trying to teach them here. He is graciously trying to teach his people something, and it'd be good for us to listen because when we look at this passage, we have to see that Exodus is also our story. If you're a believer if you've trusted in Christ, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief 
and through punishment and repentance experience again God's help and faithfulness. All this is not mere reverie, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. There, God dealt with us. There, he still deals with us. Our needs and our sins in judgment and grace. This is our story where we see a very young people of God. We could say they are new to their faith, if you will. They've been, in ex- they've been in Egypt. They've been in the world. They know it well. And now they're this kind of, they're in this in-between space. <laughs> like, okay, we walked away from all that. We learned how to survive in Egypt, even though it wasn't the best. But now we just saw God destroy Pharaoh through, through the Red Sea. And we're out here in the middle of the desert with this guy Moses that we've been trusting to this point. What's next? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that these things, now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. So let's learn. What is it we can learn about God here? God is trying to establish for his people a foundation. He's trying to establish a foundation of trusting him, of trusting him. And, and there's, a, there's a buzzword that has flown around most recently, and probably it's been around for a long time, but it's, you know, as everything does when it comes to the internet, social media, and the world that we live in, things go 100 miles an hour, right? It can go fast. So we hear probably deconstruction that's flowing around, right? And, and, and I've said this in previous sermons, maybe you've heard or not, but I would say deconstruction in itself, the idea of tearing something down, if it has a faulty foundation, is not in itself a bad thing. But in some ways, what we see people doing is deconstructing to a bad foundation or a bad understanding. They're entirely walking away from God because they never really trusted him in the beginning. They never truly trusted him in the beginning. And what God wants his people to have is true joy in him, so he wants them to trust him fully. Now, if we're going to learn from this, if we're going to see what God has for us, we need this Holy Spirit to teach us. And so I want to pray before we get into the text. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people, God, for your word. God, we're thankful for Israel and what you have established and written down for us to learn from even today. God, I pray that our hearts and our eyes, our ears would all be open to receive and to hear what you have for us and that we would receive with grace and kind of look more like Jesus. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, one of the primary things I want you to understand, and hopefully you do, is that the Lord desires his people to wholly trust him. And because I couldn't come up with anything other than try to be completely explicit, if I didn't cover something, let me know. To wholly trust him in every way, at all times, in every circumstance. There's not a moment, not a time, not an event, not a crisis that God wants to say, I understand why you don't trust me. That's probably a better option. And in this text, there's, there are stories that run through here in which God is intentionally trying to teach his people something. And there are three major truths that I want us to pull out of here. And the first one is that God disciplines his children. He disciplines his children. He disciplines, the Bible says, the ones that he loves. We read this in Proverbs, the son that he loves. 
And actually, this is a hard truth because when God disciplines in the way he does here, he says that he tests his people, he, he tries them, he tests them. Um, the New Testament, like in James, says things like, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that testing of your faith produces endurance. Romans 5 says that not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. God disciplines his children to make them more holy. And this is happening before, before Sinai. And if you know, if you're familiar, Sinai is where the law comes down, right? The law is given to God's people explicitly. But here, God is doing something with his children to try to make them trust him more and more holy. And he does it often, quite often, through trials and tribulations, through difficult times and circumstances. Now, broadly speaking, there are three kind of categories they give here about the reason you could face trials. And, and one of them being that it could be other people just coming into attack, like the Amalekites attack, attack uh, Israel, okay? That could be something. It could be outside forces attacking you. The second one uh, could be actually your own sin. And we'll read that here in this first story, that if you, if you don't keep my statutes, then, then you're subject to, to judgment. But then the third one is that God just allows it. And that's the hard one. That, that is a hard one. All of them are hard because ultimately God allows them all. And when we see in this opening passage in chapter 16, I'm sorry, the end of 15, that God is starting to allow some trials to intentionally challenge and discipline his children. Now listen, we understand this. I understand this as a parent, hopefully, that I discipline my kids in some things they don't like. Things happen to them. And I intend it for their good. I'm not a perfect parent like God, but I intend it for their good. So like for an example, right? My, when we moved into our house, we're on something of a busy road out in front of our house. No fences, no nothing, just a street, people driving crazy, taking the corner, okay? My, when we moved in, my youngest daughter was not even one years old, okay? As she gets to walk, I'm not thinking, freedom, you go out in the front yard and have fun. Let us know when you're done, you can come in, right? Sometimes she's mad. I want to go out the front door and play, Dad. I see dogs. I see other kids outside. I'm like, you don't get to do that. I put some reins on it. We go in the backyard where the fence is. And you know what? That might seem like a trial to her. Matter of fact, her mom disciplined her the other day by not letting her play with other kids out there because of what she was doing. And so it was the end of the world. It was a wreck. She had to, and the only thing she had to do was come inside and not be in the front yard. But the truth is, God is doing something that for them seems like wow, this is the end of the world. I'm going to, am I going to survive this? Yet God is trying to teach them something. And it's interesting that he does it by attacking food and drink. I think it's interesting because it's the base of our needs. We need to eat and we need to drink. And, and there's a reason they came up with the word hangry, right? I see a lot of people experience that. I've heard it. It's not an excuse, by the way, but, but yeah, hangry. Well, this is what's happening in a way, but in fact, it's happening with water. Let's read the text. Why don't we get into the word? The, then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness, and sure, they journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? 
So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and an ordinance there. Oh, let's, let's stop here. First part. Drinkable. So here we got the scenario. They show up. They're walking for three days. By all accounts, Israel's doing good. They're not saying anything. They're just walking, and they can't find water. They're in the desert. They probably somewhat experienced that. But what God knows is they still don't fully trust him yet to provide for their needs. And he wants to test them, if you will, to expose that. So they're coming along. They see, imagine you're in the desert, and you see what looks like an oasis. You're pretty enthused. You can't survive much more than three days without water, by the way, especially in a dry temperate uh, uh, climate like that, right? Okay, so you're, you're dehydrated. You see water. They run to the water, and it is bitter. Okay, you ever had your hopes, like, fully dashed like you're just you're just pumped for something look I know where my flesh is when I have my plans and I've made my plans and I'm enthusiastic about them and then somebody messes them up that's where I see my flesh flare up I'm like you you you, you, you done messed up in this case the bitterness in Israel's heart is exposed by the bitter water they taste the water and it says they grumble they grumble, meaning they look at God, and they look at Moses, actually. They're not bold enough to go to God, and they rebel. They're in their heart rebelling. They're saying, what is this? How, we need water. What are we going to drink? They're complaining. It's not a light word. They're not just going, they're not petitioning. There's a significant difference between having a need and coming to God with that need and complaining against him, and grumbling against him. Blaming him for the situation you find yourself in. And in each of these circumstances, God is trying to directly attack something that is in the heart of his, his people. In this case, it's bitterness. Hebrews 12 also tells us that we should pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And so in this circumstance, Paul in Hebrews, is pointing out the same thing that God's trying to root out of his people, and that's bitterness. That's, that's complaining heart. That's a spirit that doesn't want to submit to what God's doing and how he's leading them. And so Moses hears the petition. He hears them come to him, and he goes to God, and God satisfies them. Now, this is so gracious. You know, he doesn't strike them down. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't kill anybody. They're brand new believers. He, in fact, solves their problem despite their grumbling. What a, what a testimony of the grace of God that in spite of the fact that they're bitter and angry and blaming God for the circumstance, he still gives them a good gift. He gives them water. And he doesn't stop there because in the next passage it says he goes on to make a statute for them and he tested them there. He says, listen, I'm testing you. If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all these statutes, I won't afflict any illnesses on you that I inflict on the Egyptians for I'm the Lord who heals you. And then he leads them to an oasis which is abundant. There's 12 springs, 70 date palms. Now, I don't know that that's the exact count, but it's intended to show you there was plenty of stuff there. 12 springs, every single one of the tribes could have their own spring. 70 date palms, there were 70 elders. It's just saying, look, there's enough for everybody in this space. And so God not only heard their bitterness and gave them water there, he, he removed the bitterness of the water by Moses putting a branch in it. But then he goes on to take them to a place where they could sit and hang out for weeks and enjoy the good gift he provides 
in the oasis. He's a, such a generous God. He says this, but here's what I want you to learn. He tells them, I want you to learn this. If you'll carefully obey your God and do what's right in his sight, paying attention to his commands and keeping all these statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. He's the God who heals you. Now, what I don't want you to hear in this passage, and God is not saying that, he's not saying that if you just do everything that's right in my sight, you are gonna be healthy, wealthy, healed up, and everything's gonna be great. That doesn't jive with the rest of scripture. In fact, he continues down this path to allow things to happen to them. But what he is trying to tell them is you will not be under my judgment. That's what Egypt got. Egypt got the judgment of God rained down on them because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. And God is saying, you won't see that from me if you follow my statutes. Yeah, you might have some trials. Yeah, you might run some tip. God says, yeah, that may come, but if you trust me, if you keep my statutes, I won't bring judgment on you because I'm the God who heals. And it might be in your timing, but I heal and I make all things new. How quickly they forget, though, as they're in this oasis. How quickly we forget. Remember, this grumbling comes only days after the song of those being sung in the last passage about God's salvation, right? And now they're grumbling against God. Well, then he takes them to an oasis and he shows his provision and immediately after it says the entire Israelite community in chapter 16 departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which was between uh, Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. This is only a couple months in. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the hand of, uh, land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. And st- instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Now, this is not just grumbling. This is actually discontentment. It's not like they didn't have food. We actually know they had livestock. Later, it says they were looking for water for their livestock. They could have had meat there. They could have had cheese. They could have had the milk. But in fact, it wasn't what they were looking for. They're like, hey, when we were back in Pharaoh's, back under Pharaoh's rule and authority, listen, we had all the meat we could handle, man. God, what's up with you? They, they had this like rose-colored glasses. You ever been that way? Things are in a tough spot, and all of a sudden, you, you only remember the good times? Like to look back with these rose-colored glasses that say, man, it was amazing back there. Pharaoh gave us all we needed. I don't think there was a meat buffet in Egypt. (laughs) It doesn't seem that way because they were pretty eager to get away from it. And so the, the people quickly forget, and he's continuing to remind them to trust him with their basic needs because he responds this way. Hey, Moses, remember how I rained hail back in Egypt? I'm about to rain bread down from heaven. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them again, teaching, to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather the other days. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaint is not against us, but against the Lord. And that's such an important thing that Moses has drawn out. The issue here for Israel is their discontentment. They're not like Paul and, and Philippians, where Paul says that I've learned how to have much, I've learned how to have little. I've learned in every aspect the secret of contentment. I'm able to do all these things through him who strengthens me. And see, the Israelites aren't, aren't resting in God's strength yet. They're not content in the circumstance they find themselves in, but they're actually complaining against the God who has saved them. It's exactly what Paul says again in Philippians 2 when he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you would be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. He was actually referencing Israel in that, in that verse. He's saying, don't be like that. Don't be grumbling and complaining. But instead, like, like Moses points out, they come to Moses and complain because he's an easy scapegoat. Isn't that what we do? Like we... Are we bold enough to go to God and say, why did you put me in this circumstance? But rather, we blame those around us. We, we blame the really bad boss we have at work because they're just not doing it right. Uh, we, we blame maybe someone who, one of our neighbors who doesn't appreciate the way that we decorate our, our yard. And that, that we don't, I'm sorry, I'm talking from out of experience. So maybe um, we, we, blame, we blame neighbors that cause problems for us. We blame uh, family, that God, oh, why have you strapped me with these people that are my relatives? Woe is me. But instead, what Moses says is the reality is, why are you complaining against us? Your complaint is actually against God. I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it's funny that I use the illustration of family and my dad's here this morning. I don't know if he takes that personally, sorry. I think he's got a great dad. And so God is, in, Moses is rightfully pointing out for them, you're not complaining against me, you're complaining against God. He's the one that has you here. But despite your complaint, he is still gonna satisfy your need. And he's gonna do it in a way that's trying to teach you something. What's he doing to teach them? He's going, don't go out only go out and get what you need every day because I supply your needs. You don't, need to, you don't need to work ahead. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. He also says, don't, don't doubt me that I'm going to send it tomorrow. And then if that's not enough, he says, on the sixth day, you collect twice as much because I'm not sending any on Sunday. And you need to just rest in me. You need to rest and remember that I'm the God who has provided for you in worship. And even in spite of that, even in spite of those directions and God testing them, we see that the Israelites still struggled to follow and listen. They're still young in their faith. They're immature. They get out the next day and they doubt. They take more than they need for the day and it spoils the next morning. And then some get out on Sunday, or not Sunday, I'm saying Sunday, Lord's Day, I'm sorry. They get out on the Sabbath day and they try to collect more because they're anxious. They're toiling after something that God says, rest. I provide. I give you all that you need. 
Like Christ says in, in, when he speaks on earth, he says, be anxious for nothing. Look, look at the bird. Look at the flower. I provide for their needs. And what God's trying to teach the Israelites is I am enough every day. I am enough to satisfy what you need. Just trust me. But Israel still goes and they struggle. They go out in the morning. They try to collect. They go out um, and try to gather more. They try to gather more than they should. They store it up for the next day. And God continues to teach Israel. On the seventh day, 27, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So let the people rest on the seventh day. And this is a dramatic change from Egypt, by the way. There's no evidence of any rest, a day of rest in Egypt. And there definitely wasn't one for a slave. As they come out of Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh, which they're begging to go back to, the God they're following now says, I will supply all your needs. Just take a day and rest in me. And this is, by the way, before the Ten Commandments. And I'm not suggesting this to be a Sabbath law. It's interesting. It's funny that we often look at this and we say, hey, is the Sabbath something that's for today? Do I need to practice that? Do I not? Why are we as believers like pushing back on God giving us a day off? We're just saying. <laughs> it's like the one we have a problem with. Do not uh, commit adultery. Do not you know, honor your father and mother. Do not lie. Do not steal. Take a day off. <sighs> I think it actually reveals our own anxieties. It reveals our own doubt. It reveals we think the world needs us more than it does. And what I'm not suggesting is we necessarily need to institute some kind of a legalistic law keeping of the Sabbath. God told, in the New Testament, God told the Pharisees that the Sabbath, that man's not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was given to man. And God gives us a gift when he says, just rest in me, be still. And he's trying to extend that gift to the Israelites. He's trying to tell them, I will provide for your needs. You just need to learn to trust me. You just need to learn to trust me. Well, they continue on. It doesn't end there because in chapter 17, the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people. It to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. First, they made a demand. Give us water. We know you did it before. Do it this time. Then they say, why are you, then Moses responds, why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord? Now, this is when it ele- elevates. God has already demonstrated in their bitterness he would still provide for them, and he leads them to an oasis. Then they come back, and they're, dil- they're still discontent. They're still not trusting God. They're still anxious for the next day and not trusting in him and God sends them plenty of food and tries to teach and show them I will provide your daily needs in fact it says the manna continues all the way through the 40 years the bread sent from heaven and now in this instance not only are they doubting not only are they bitter but they are accusing God and the accusation is that you've trying to murder us you brought us out to kill us 
Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cries out in frustration, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. Just only to elevate and demonstrate they were mad and they said this is God's fault. And this is the world we live in. When a tragedy occurs, the question is to bring some local pastor on and say, why did God let this happen? We're not, we're not immune to asking those same questions in our day-to-day life, are we? A loss of a loved one, a miscarriage, a sickness that won't go away. Why does God let this happen? Are you trying to kill us, God? The Lord answered to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in the hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Now this is an important setting that God's doing because he is reiterating the fact that the Israelite people are trying to put him on trial. He asked for the 70 elders because they're witnesses to the trial. He asked for for Moses to bring his staff, the one that he used for all of the miracles in the, in, in, uh, in the plagues. And God says, I will stand before you on the rock. I will stand before the people who are judging me. And then it goes on to say this, when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, do you find yourself sometimes wanting to put God to the test? God, are you really here? The Psalms are, often we see the case where the psalmist says, God, how long will you forsake me? How long will you leave me in this condition? Where are you, God? That's what Israel's asking. And in response to that, God shows up at the rock and says, I am here, and I provide. And though you accuse me, I still provide for you, and I'm still with you. I'm still among you. In those dark times that we sit wondering, God is still with you. When it seems like tragedy won't end and there's, there's pain in your life, God has not forsaken you. And one of the important things we have to recognize in this case is that where God doesn't strike out on Israel where they rightfully deserve it, but instead he has Moses strike the rock. And Paul goes even further in the New Testament and says that rock is Christ. That the punishment and the pain and the and, and the, 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 the wrath of God for sin was not laid out on his people, but instead on the rock, on Christ. And then when Christ took God's wrath on our account, that he poured out streams of living water. Like he told the woman at the well, when you drink from these wells, you'll never thirst again. Israel got the water they needed. The rock took the hit. 
and God provided. God provided. But he doesn't just provide when we have trials in our life. He doesn't just provide when we face some unknown certainty. He also fights our battles. And we see that in Malachi, uh, in, in Exodus 17. Because at, at Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him, and he fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Now the account we have here is apparently rather horrific. Amalek comes on Israel and attacks them when they're vulnerable and he attacks the weak. That's what actually we read elsewhere. They come off and try to pick off the women, children, and sick people at the back of the line. That's how they came and attacked. Um, And they came when they were vulnerable. They came when they had no way to defend themselves. And that's why in the next portion of this, it says that the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. There's punishment for what they did. But what we see from Moses is that he has some direction for Joshua that God doesn't clearly articulate to him. He says, rather, you go get together the people to fight and I'm going to go stand up on the hill and hold my hands up. This is a common posture. It's often, this is often cited as, as, God, as Moses praying during, throughout. It's, we, you know, bow our heads, close our eyes, we teach our kids this, we do this. But actually, often throughout Scripture, it says we raise holy hands in prayer. And so Moses is raising his hands. Now, there's no direct correlation. It doesn't say explicitly that's what he's doing. But in fact, God is demonstrating something to his people. Because the people on the battlefield never changed. Only Moses' hands dropped. And so it wasn't dependent on the people in the field. It was dependent on God who would fight for them. That that when Moses was having his hands in the air, Israel would prevail. But whenever they fall, God made it clear to his people that I'm not fighting for you anymore. Now, don't take this as some hard, fast rule. You don't say, hey, listen, I'm going through a tough time, or you are. I'm just going to stay at home and hold my hands in the air, and all my family's going to hold them up for me. Okay? Not, not what we're saying here. It's not a clear, immediate principle. But, but God is teaching something to them, and so is therefore teaching something to us. Not many of us are going to actually face a, a, a battle on a field like the Amalekites, okay? But we do fight a spiritual battle every day. And if you don't recognize that you're in a spiritual battle every day, then you're not readily walking the Christian life. We might go and we might come to an oasis. God might leave us in a moment of oasis, but this walk that they're on, this trial and tribulation from day to day, there's spiritual battle throughout. And the same thing for our life, that there is spiritual battle day by day. And when, when Moses holds his hands up, they prevail. And when Paul in Ephesians talks about spiritual warfare, he says you need to prepare for it day by day. And by the way, just a note, he talks about relationships like marriage, kids, 
co-workers, all that stuff. He, does, he doesn't talk about like some big battle where somebody who's an atheist brings his whole throng of atheists to come attack you in a big debate on some big stage. No, it's just a daily life of trying to bring your kids and get them out of bed and get to work that day. That's where the enemy attacks. And he tells them, put on the armor of God. And then note at the end of Ephesians 6, he says to pray. Because that's where your strength comes from. Just like Moses demonstrated that the strength of Israel comes from God, our strength also comes from him. A day by day as we fight our battles, there's no way we can actually win them in our own strength. And the temptation for us on the other side of this is to try to fight our own battles. We're tempted to try to defend ourselves. We're tempted to try to justify ourselves. We're tempted to try to strike out on our own. Spend a lot of time plotting and planning our revenge rather than praying. And praying that God would in the end justify you. We dwell on our hurt. We dwell on the way others have hurt us when really we should be dwelling in God's word. We should be trusting him to fight our battles. And so as we look at this stretch, we see all the negative responses. We see Israel's bitterness. We see their complaining. We see their discontentment. We see all these illustrated, but there's somebody in this story that I want us to take a moment to look at to demonstrate what it looks like to actually live by faith, to walk by faith. The righteous live by faith is what Habakkuk tells us. Paul repeats that same phrase that we walk trusting in God. And so we want to look at Moses. What does Moses do? Moses gives us an example of faith. First, whenever Israel comes and complains to him, whenever Israel grumbles, whenever they bring an accusation, what is Moses' first response? He takes the petition to the Lord. He goes to him. And he brings it to God. Not in accusation, not in his guilt, not in complaining. He said, they're complaining against you. God, what do we do? And so when we face trials, when we face temptation, when we face tribulation, my encouragement to you is to bring your petitions to God with thanksgiving. God, thank you for all that you've done. Just like Philippians tells us. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And he will bring you joy. And that's what, Paul do, that's what Moses does first. He brings a petition to the Lord. The second thing he does is that he prays over Israel. So not only is he bringing the petition to the Lord, but he's also praying over the people that God has entrusted to him. He prays over their life. He prays for them to win the battle. He prays just like Paul says in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God and pray that God brings the, the, the victory. So when we have complaints, we bring them to God. When we, have, when we feel attacked, when we're in the battle, we pray. We pray for God's strength. And the third thing he does is he actually shares the good news with Jethro. He shares the good news with Jethro. Now listen, you might not expect when you go into this part about Jethro that it's an evangelism kind of part of the story. But in fact, it is. In fact, it is. There's evidence here that Jethro is not necessarily a believer in the one true God before he gets here. He's a priest of Midian. And the, and, the, and, the, and the testimony we see from Moses is as God has been faithful to him, when he comes to Jethro, when his father-in-law comes to visit, he tells him about God's goodness. 
Read it with me. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Exodus 18, starting in verse 5. Along with Moses' wife and sons came to him in the wilderness where he was camped in the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. He greeted him, friendly, come in. Come in, Dad. Happy you're here. They asked each other how they had been and went on into the tent. And it's at that point in verse 8 we see this. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that confronted them on this on the way, and how the Lord rescued them. And what was Jethro's response? He rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel. Moses recounts to him how God had done this in in Egypt, how the Lord had saved them from Pharaoh for Israel's sake, and how all, he doesn't stop there, by the way, the hardships they faced. Have you heard the, maybe you've heard the testimonies where I came to God, I came to faith, all of a sudden all my troubles are gone. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew. I don't go with girls would do, you might know that, it's an old one, sorry. But I've heard this. I've heard the person stand up. They look like they got the cape on their back. I don't relate to that. Moses highlights the hardships they faced on the journey with God. And, and would I submit to you that in the hardships is where we really demonstrate the trust we have for him. In the hardships is where God really truly digs in and builds our faith. In the hardships and the trial is where God demonstrates his faithfulness and he goes on to say exactly that. He talks about the hardships that confronted them and how the Lord rescued them. And he's, he's sharing the gospel, the good news. What happened? God saved us. And Jethro hears it, Jethro receives it, and he says, Bless the Lord who rescued you from the power of Egypt, from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. He sees God's power and says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Brothers and sisters, when our trust is deeply rooted in the Lord, no matter our trials, no matter our tribulations, the joy we have in God overflows and we can't help but tell other people about it. We can't help but share what God has done in our life. Jethro hears God's work and Jethro is changed. He brings a sacrifice. He celebrates. He worships God because he recognizes that now he knows that the Lord is the greatest God. When we fully trust in the Lord, we have joy in him no matter the circumstance. When we fully trust in the Lord, like Jesus says, people will know us by our love for one another. When we fully trust in the Lord, like Peter tells us, others will recognize the hope in us. How can there be hope on display if we're not trusting him in the trials? And when we fully trust in the Lord, we are now free to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. God is able to give us his law and write it in our hearts so that we can follow him in obedience because we are trusting in him. This comes before the law because if they got the law and they checked all the boxes on doing the law, they're not really learning to trust God. They're trusting in the law. They're not becoming more holy. They're becoming more legalistic. They're following a system. They're not following their Savior. 
And they're not growing more deeply in love with him. They're just becoming more satisfied in their own performance. And so God brings grace and he pleads with us, trust in me. It doesn't mean you're gonna have perfect life, uh, health for life, but one day all things will be made new. It doesn't mean you win every battle along the way, but God has won the ultimate war against Satan, sin, and death. It doesn't mean you always have all your wants or all your needs at all time, but your greatest need is satisfied in Christ. Jesus Christ died on the tree. Just like Moses throws the tree in the water, Christ died on the tree and he took our bitter, bitter sin so that we can enjoy sweet communion with God. Jesus Christ, like the manna that came from heaven, says, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. I satisfy your daily need. I am the satisfaction, the life that you need. And Jesus Christ is our rock struck for our sin, and he gives us living water so that we never thirst again. I'm gonna read the passage that I think sums this up that we just read together earlier, but I wanna end here in Proverbs 3. Exact same thing that God is trying to teach his people here is what the, is, is what, uh, the proverb is trying to teach us. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord's disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. This is my invitation to you. Um, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper here in a moment and, and have a time to, to reflect, but my encouragement is this. The, the sin that was underlying in Israel had to be exposed. God brought them into trials to try to lift that out because he wanted to grow his children. And many of us in here are facing some kind of a trial or temptation. It's very likely that it could be today, it could be tomorrow, anytime. We're not at the oasis all the time. And my encouragement is that you take the opportunity to reflect in your own heart of where God might have... Uh, might be trying to uproot bitterness, where he might be trying uh, to, to challenge your discontentment so that you can find contentment in him. Consider where you're complaining against your circumstance because really, like Moses says, we're actually complaining against God. Ask him to take away our doubt, our anxiety, and ultimately, let's be real honest with ourselves. Are we blaming God for where we are today rather than resting in him? Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for the way that you instruct us day by day. Thank you, God, that you take the time, like with Israel, to walk with us patiently and kindly, that you demonstrate your grace to us every moment of every day, and that even in trials and tribulations, we can trust in you. And God, I pray that as we walk away from here, we would trust more deeply in you and your sovereignty and your grace and your provision, and God, that we would trust in Christ. I ask all this in his name. Amen.